Today's episode is brought to you in part by Ugly Duckling Oboes. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young and growing oboists. They strive to provide the necessary tools to help students succeed. They believe in setting students up for success, which is why they rent and sell full conservatory system oboes. Owner Christy Selkeen makes student oboe reads, teaches locally and globally via Skype, including audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors, and rents and sells student oboes. This is an amazing resource that you're going to want to take advantage of, and you can do so by visiting uglyducklingoboes.com, which is where you can also sign up for Christy's newsletter. That's uglyducklingoboes.com. Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Jenna Ingle Reads, you get prompt communication, reads, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Happy Valentine's Day, Galit. Happy Valentine's Day, Jackie. Will you be my third Valentine? I will because my husband's out of town. (laughs) And even if he wasn't, Valentine's Day is his birthday. Oh, oh, I forgot. Chris is a Valentine's Day baby. Yeah. So he has like all this PTSD of people wanting to like be with their Valentines instead of him on his birthday. Getting like Valentine's candy for a birthday gift and stuff. No. And we draw that boundary very clearly, <laughs> but it means I don't really get a traditional Valentine's Day typically. So whatever. I hate Valentine's Day. It's a Hallmark holiday. <laughs> well, for Valentine's Day, my wife got me a gift card to Starbucks. She said, go get yourself a coffee and a snack. Oh, what a and snack she is. So romantic. I know she's such a snack. Oh. And my second Valentine's Day is my dog Luna. Or my second val did I call Luna my Valentine's Day? I don't know. I think I did. <laughs> it's accurate. <laughs> <laughs> So in honor of Valentine's Day, even though this is coming out on the 15th, we are talking today about love. (laughs) I'm in love. How nice. (laughs) I mean, that's a pretty big accomplishment. Can we just acknowledge for all the married people out there to be married for as long as you and Chris have been married and to still be in love is pretty awesome. It is. How long have we been married? Either 13 or 14 years. Or maybe we've been together that long? No. (laughs) 
got married. Wait. We got married in 2006. It'll be Chris is listening and screaming. <laughs> so we wanted to start out our discussion of Valentine's Day love double read style by just shouting out some of classical music's hottest composers. Hottest composers. <laughs> There are so many to choose from. Well, and our jumping off point is this like BuzzFeed list of hottest composers that oh I just God, ran into. Oh my God, would you read it to me? Some of them are highly questionable. They start <laughs> off with Wagner. <laughs> no way! <laughs> Tchaikovsky, Chopin, which I agree with. I've always uh-huh. thought he was a stunner. Bach? J.S. Bach? <laughs> Uh, um brahms who i agree with young i young brahms yes but buyer beware because those goods expire quickly let's just be real no shade but i'm not trying to killing me right now i don't want no santa claus for a sweetheart man um beethoven who the pictures look good but he mm. notoriously like so poor hygiene and like Ew. right wasn't there a theory that he went deaf because he had such bad hygiene and like the wax built up no i have not heard that theory <laughs> i thought no. that was like no. one of the theories <laughs> no. that's such a dumb reason to be deaf um, they put my main man, Rachmaninoff, at number six. Uh-huh. But I really think he deserves to be higher because if you look yeah, at like, him when he's young, it just, like, oh, hi. Wait, <laughs> I'm not mad at it. <laughs> Their top three, they have Gershwin, the boyish looks of Gershwin. Second, the um, historically devastating profile of Franz Liszt. Oh, yeah, he was on my list for sure. And number one, um, Grieg. Really? Yeah, I Yeah, I don't Okay. <laughs> no shade to all those Greek fans. Yeah, I guess Greek over list. See, that doesn't make sense to me. Didn't women like throw brasiers at list and stuff like that? Isn't that why you started playing yeah. in profile cuz they were just like going Oh, his nose. It was like Beatles mania, but <laughs> <laughs> list mania well can i add a person to this list that is you know i've it's like a travesty please jennifer higdon oh yes that is a travesty that she's been left off that list because she is flames she is flames also um alma Mahler, very kind of rarely shouted out composer oh, in her and own can right, i but... say who else is drop dead gorgeous is clara schumann Yes. Thank you so much. Oh, beautiful ladies and men of classical music. Thank you for the notes. Thank you for the face. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jackie, what would you say is... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Please. Please. This is the best dish I have ever participated in. <laughs> okay, so Jackie, not all of us are have been married for 14 years. Or 13. It, the jury's out. I'm still doing math. <laughs> so what is your best classical music breakup song? Just Peace. like 
He dumped me. It's over. And I need to sit on my bed, cry about it, and be angsty for a while. Mm -hmm. I think it would be the third movement of the Rachmaninoff cello sonata. Oh, yes. Which is just like devastatingly sad. Not only will you be sad that they don't love you anymore, you will be convinced that they no one will ever love you again. <laughs> Thank you, hot, young Rachmaninoff, for making us feel like we will never be loved. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> so mine was Elgar's Nimrod. You know, that they play, like every time someone dies, they play Nimrod. <laughs> it's just like the death of people, the death of love. Death of my love. Death of my heart. The death of my feelings. <laughs> If you want to have a good cry, just listen to that. Or like Barber's Adagio for strings. Oh, yeah. That's mm -hmm. a good one. Anything Barber. <laughs> we also wanted to discuss the most messed up classical music, like declarations of love. Just like these people are twisted and sick and we love it. <laughs> so the obvious one is Berlioz Symphony Fantastique. It's like, I met you, I love you, and that love makes me want to murder you in a rage of opioids. I'm stalking you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dreaming about your death and then my eventual beheading and then a witch rising from the grave. I don't know. And like, it's questionable if I even love you because like you played this character that I'm kind of obsessed with and uh, I've never really even talked to you. We don't speak the same language. It's fine. Freak. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. And then how messed up is she that like- She married him. Run away. And she's just like- intriguing okay. tell me more oh, oh oh you would like to murder me oh Hector, i never <laughs> you're so bad uh. <laughs> like what they deserve each other right didn't she leave him eventually because he just got too creepy if someone writes you a symphony because they've been stalking you <laughs> And it's about how they dream that they, like, kill you in a drug raid. <sighs> Don't marry that person. Take it from someone with 13 to 14 years of marriage experience. <laughs> Maybe don't marry that person. You know what? What I would recommend is to write everything down, keep a record, tell a friend. Tell the police. <laughs> tell the police. Tell Scotland Yard. <laughs> Maybe a restraining order. You just got to protect yourself. I also wanted to make sure to shout out Berg's Lyric Suite, which I will never forget in grad school. I read a phenomenal article about, and this is this piece for strings. And it's all about how Berg uses the rose in the piece to like spell things, which is not totally new right mm -hmm. composers spell stuff in their music all the time but um his, so his name is Alban Berg AB and then she was Hannah and then I forget her last name but it started with a B so she was HB 
And so he made this motive of ABHB. And of course, H is like a note in Germany. Isn't and it B flat? Yeah, I, I believe you're right. It's B flat. Yeah. Someone's screaming at the podcast right now. Please forgive me. <laughs> So yeah, he comes up with this motive that's like Hannah plus Albon. And it's just this like love letter to her that he imbibed within the music. That's really lovely. Like, oh my gosh. And then it's like his wife, Hannah. No, she's not his wife. She's his mistress. Oh. Pig. Anyway, if you have love letters uh, in your music, please write to us at doublereaddish at gmail.com. We would love to hear about them. <laughs> oh, no. It's Hannah Fuchs was oh, her name. Oh, so it would be B flat F. Yes. Sorry. To the person <laughs> screaming at our podcast right now. <laughs> Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mor, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lafrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double read accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Hey, oboists, have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleure of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. For a current listing of Obo Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish Nathan Hughes, Principal Oboe of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. We love to start off by getting to know our guests by hearing how they began to play their instrument. So can you tell us how you came to the oboe? Well, I'm originally from St. Paul, Minnesota, and I I grew up in a household that was uh, full of people playing uh, instruments. I'm the youngest of four, and uh, my parents encouraged music making and, and playing instruments and singing in choirs, actually, for all of us. So um, some of my earliest memories about music in general were actually just um, sitting in the lessons of my older siblings. Um, So I remember sitting in a lesson of my sister for piano and my brother for percussion and and actually even my father, who was uh, at the time starting to learn how to play the bagpipe. And he, um, he went on to actually be a professional bagpiper. And so that's kind of how I was first introduced to music. But when I was seven, I joined the Minnesota Boy Choir. And this was something that I sort of fell in love with. And this is when I really found out how much fun it could be to make music with friends and just sort of the magical capabilities of music. A um, couple years after I did the Minnesota Boy Choir, I was actually I did that for seven years, but 
years after I started that, I began piano. And that's something I stuck with for about 12 years. Uh, and, and that was a, a, something that after I started oboe became sort of just a, sort of a release for me, a very enjoyable way to uh, play music. Um, so piano started, I think I was like nine or 10. And then when I was 13, uh, it was getting to the end of my years in the boy choir. My voice was changing. And uh, so we sort of thought it'd be good to start an instrument. So we, we listened to some instruments and uh, narrowed it down to the French horn and the oboe. And uh, I, I thought I would start lessons on both and see which one I liked. I started with oboe and I just sort of stuck with it. While you were talking, I was thinking, okay, you're the youngest of four. Maybe you chose the oboe because it would be the loudest and get you the most attention. You know, but then you well, said drums and bagpipes. And so <laughs> that doesn't well, work. The other part, there, there's, there's, there's quite a bit of irony, actually, of me choosing the oboe. And that is, if anybody has been in the same household with uh, you know, a drum set or a bagpipe, um, you would know that this is something that is, is something you run away from. And uh, the bagpipe in particular, you know, oboe, of course, is a double reed, and the bagpipe happens to be a double reed. And um, so I, I, I can't even believe that I chose the oboe, honestly, because I wanted to do something so far away from the bagpipe, you can't believe. But, uh, but what, what sort of drew me in actually was when I discovered the range of the oboe, you know, from like a low B flat up to, you know, F or G or something like that. It happened to be exactly the same or very close to the same range that my voice as a boy was. Oh. And yeah. And so I was, you know, I was getting to the end of my singing career, shall we say, in my mind. And I, I knew I wasn't going to continue singing for some reason. I just, that wasn't something I was going to do, but it was still a very special part of my life. And I knew that then, and I, I was going to miss it. So in a way, oboe was a continuation of that for me. Oh, that is fascinating. Yeah. Would you talk us through your educational journey, professional training, and how you got to the Met? So things started moving pretty quickly for me on the oboe. I started when I was 13. Actually, about a year later, I had what I kind of consider my first lucky break, and and that was um, it, I was actually at the horse race track with my older brother, and uh, we I went there only with ten dollars. Of course, I couldn't bet, but I gave him my money, and I said, "Okay, I'm going to bet on this horse and this horse." And this was the first time I had ever been there. But uh, this was the Canterbury Downs outside of um, the Twin Cities, and uh, so we're there, and I lost all my money right away. And I was like, "Let's go. This is this is you know this is not very much fun here." And they're like, "No, no, no. Let's just wait." Is with his girlfriend as well. Let's just let's just play. You know, let's just bet on a few more horses. I'm like, okay, fine. So they bet on something called the Pick Six, which was the um, the big bet for the day or whatever. You pick six horses in a row that are going to win that might win the race, and if you win, you get the jackpot for the day. And so we're sitting there. First race goes by, and we actually won. Couldn't believe it. Second goes by, we won again. We were just ecstatic because already we've already won, you know, at least several hundred dollars and our bet was almost nothing. Anyway, three, four, five, six, we won. And I mean, we just could not believe this. That's amazing. I know. It was the jackpot for the day, which was like about 
thirty thousand, a little over thirty thousand dollars or something. What? Yeah. However, there was another person who won, and so we had to split split the pot. And um, but nevertheless, so we we still won some money, and we were just you know so excited we couldn't believe it. Anyway, my older brother really knew I was into the oboe and into music, so we didn't really have a lot of money around, and I was playing this junky, junky oboe. So he bought me a new oboe with the money. Oh. Yeah. So that's kind of when I thought, all right, I better get practicing. I better at least put this thing to good use. So that was, that was sort of one of my first lucky breaks, I think. Um, and then, I, I, you know, things moved quickly. I joined like the youth orchestra in the Twin Cities and I started this Saturday preparatory program. You learn, you know, theory and all that stuff. Um, and then when I was 16, I went down to, I was accepted to the Herod Conservatory which is in Boca Raton, Florida. It, it no longer is there. It's been sort of absor- absorbed by Lynn University now. But at the time, it was a brand new conservatory. And it was uh, for college age, but they, just, they let me in early. And it um, is a special place in that it's a very small school, just like one chamber orchestra size of, of uh, musicians and st- of students. And it was tuition free. And not only was it tuition free, but they also paid a, stip- a, week- a weekly stipend plus repairs for your instruments. They paid for summer music festivals. They gave you a place to live. It was like this really outstanding situation um, just financially, but also it was a it was a big jump start to my oboe studies because I was much younger than everybody else and you know it just um, got me to play at a much higher level and I think when I was there that's when I sort of decided that music was going to be a path for me uh, it was kind of a test run down there um, so I'll be forever grateful for that school um, for doing that to me. So I stayed down there for a couple of years. And then uh, from there, I went to the Cleveland Institute of Music, uh, where I studied with John Mack. And um, also during this time, I was studying with uh, John Delancey during the summers at the Aston Music Festival. Mm. So um, for about four summers there and four years at CIM, I was studying with um, both of these teachers, which I found actually very interesting in many ways. Um, they're both, you know, musical giants at this point. This was the, the end of their, uh, their lives basically when I was studying with them. And so they were already very well known and had had, you know, many, many successful students and, and distinguished careers. And I was very well aware of that, um, when I was studying with them and I felt very fortunate to have this opportunity to study with both of them. And I I feel that was a, a rather formative time for me um, and influenced uh, my direction quite a bit. And I, and I liked the fact that I had this a little bit of variety um, with the teachers at that point. Uh, a lot of people sort of think that maybe they are extremely different um, as teachers. And sometimes you hear oboists talk about these different camps and things like that. And I'm not very fond of that sort of uh, uh, thinking. I think everybody's just, you know, a musician, an artist um, of their own individuality. But I have to say, studying with these two people, there were more similarities between them than differences. And I, when I was studying with them, I tried to concentrate mostly on those similarities. And um, 
and, and take that with me as much as I could. Could we ask you to dive into that more specifically, especially, you know, if we have some younger listeners who aren't familiar with the um, kind of differences that these men are held in? And I'd just love to hear more detail about that. Yeah. So on the biggest levels, I would say they were, they very much saw eye to eye. I mean, they did both study with Marcel Tabito after all, and um, that's probably part of it. so I would say on the on the biggest level, they, for instance, you know, always put the composer's intentions first in the music. That was sort of a priority that I heard from both of them. They both also had sort of a what I would call a sort of an intellectual approach to music making, in that they had reasons for everything that they wanted to do in the music. Everything was planned out in the music, and spontaneity was sort of within those parameters. Uh, I think some of that also might have been a little bit of a generational thing as well as a focus. Um, And I would say that both of them also prioritized a sound that was very focused um, and balanced and including vibrato as well. So very centered and very focused in sound. The, you know, there were some slight differences between the two. Um, I, I went through the Barrett, studies with both of them and it, that was an interesting thing because Delancey um, went through the book and changed a lot of the markings a lot of the dynamics and made them a little less fussy made them into more simple long lines and Max approach was to keep the markings but try to find a way to make sense of them try to find a way to incorporate them into your interpretation so that that was an interesting um, difference that I that I th- thought I could take with me in a way. I mean, Delancey's approach was a way to simplify it and to sort of it gave you some liberty. You felt, um, you know, in a way, oh, it's okay to have some liberty with what the composer has given you. And Max's approach was to sort of rationalize what was given to you. Um, so both of those, I think, are very important. Um, I also think perhaps they had a slightly different approach to sort of like finishing a read. I think they both looked for a read that had good response and good pitch, like any good healthy read would have. Um, but as we all know, when we're finishing a read, things can get a little crazy and you have to decide <laughs> what you're going to do in that last stage. And I feel like Delancey perhaps at the end was would prior, prioritize response and um, vibration, and then at the end, try to clip it up to to a stable pitch. Mm -hmm. And I think Mac sort of, at the end, was still prioritizing pitch Mm -hmm. and then scraping for just a little bit and a little bit more response, little by little. So it was, you know, they're still sort of going for this ideal place that they're looking for, but, you know, they just come from it slightly different uh, sides of, of that ideal. Which do you tend to do in in your remaking? You know, I, I actually think I go back and forth, and and I and I mean back and forth literally with every read. Um, so when I'm finishing up the read, I'm I'm trying to be very aware of okay, is the pitch level in the right place? I I don't try to let it fall too flat at any stage. I think once you if you let it go way too flat, it's it, it can be very hard to bring back. Um, 
but I'm, I'm trying to keep very aware of how is it responding and how is the pitch stability. Those two things need to be there with every read. Otherwise, you don't have a read that's going to function. It's, it's going to give you major, major problems. So I honestly, I flip around back and forth between both of those at the final stage. And one of the biggest messages I think I learned from John Delancey was how to be prepared, or I should say the importance of being prepared. Uh, I'll never forget the lesson. I, I walked in there and I was playing some Barrett Etudes and, and he stopped me and he said, you know, listen, my boy, he's always called me his, listen, my boy, my boy. Um, <laughs> Anyway, he said, listen, my boy, he's like, I can tell you have some abilities here, but you're, you're making all these stupid mistakes. You know, it makes me think that you're not practicing what I've asked you to practice. And he said, you know, maybe I think we have to look at getting you another teacher. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> that was that was a big one. And I, of course, I was I was a good student. I was trying to do everything he asked me to do. I practiced quite a bit. But, of course, in the lessons, I would get a little nervous, and so things would, would somewhat fall apart. So from then on, I started realizing, okay, you have to prepare to the point where when you're nervous, things are still going to work. And so that, that really was a, was, a, was a big message to learn, um, and, and I'm very appreciative of having learned at such a young, young age. What did that look like for you? Well, basically, that would be when, you, when you're practicing something, most people practice it wrong many, many times, and then they yeah. get it once. Yeah. And then they're like, okay, I got it. I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'll be, you know, be good to go at my lesson. Well, unfortunately, they probably practiced it 50 times incorrectly and once perfectly. Hmm. And unfortunately, I think you have to outnumber the imperfect times with the perfect ones. So I started um, doing this little, you know, practice method, which I think a lot of people do. And that is you put uh, three things on the stand, three, three pennies or whatever you have, three of anything. And you practice something until you can do it perfectly three times in a row. So I'd practice a phrase. If I did it once, I'd move the penny to the other side of the stand. If I could do it another time, I'd move a second penny. If I messed up the third time, both pennies go back to the beginning and you start over. And I just did that until I could finally play something just the way I was hoping to play it three times in a row. And that did seem to work. Um, that along with quite a bit of metronome work. That's when I really started working with a metronome, I think. Um, and just making sure that I could do it at different tempos and that I was working it up sort of in a linear way. Um, so I never practiced it faster than I could actually successfully play it. Uh, and I just work it up slowly. And that, that method helped me a lot for technical things for many, many years. I started incorporating myself another way of practicing technical things and that I sort of, I sort of call it a, a sensational way of practicing things. And then when I talk to my students, it's I usually describe it that, you know, some things can't be learned in this linear fashion. Um, you know, you take, for instance, riding a bike. If you ever try to ride a bike, starting slow and speeding up very slowly, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You need the momentum 
of the bike to actually get the feeling of how to ride the bike. So there's certain technical things which I actually practice only up to tempo, but I do them in short little chunks. And it's, it's sort of a technique that I learned from one of my piano teachers along the way who never, he never let me practice anything under tempo. And, uh, but he would allow me to do it in some very, very small chunks, like three note chunks. And then you grow and, you know, then becomes a five note chunk and then a seven note or whatever. Um, so anyway, that was, this is very, I was very young at the time when I was studying to Lansing, and this was sort of just the beginnings of learning how to really, uh, practice in a methodical way. I think it was studying with John Mack one of the biggest messages that I learned was how a positive and fun attitude could actually bring you a life full of joy playing music. And he, he just had a way about him, a very warm approach towards his students and this infectious love towards music, which it just made you think that, you know what, this is a good path. This is a good thing to be working on. This is a good thing to dedicate your life to. Um, it's worthwhile. And, and it, that is, I think, really powerful because if people feel like what they're doing is not important or not, not a good idea, then they don't have much incentive to really, you know, do the work that's necessary. So then after CIM, I went and studied at the Juilliard School, um, which uh, after a year of being there, I actually won my first job in the Savannah Symphony. So went down to Savannah soon after that and um, had a wonderful time playing there. It was a great first job, had wonderful um, woodwind colleagues to, to play with and, and, and learn a lot from. Honestly, I learned a lot at that time. Um, from Savannah, uh, let's see, I went, I went and to the Met. I had a one-year position at the Met for Principal Obo. Um, which was one of the most challenging years of my life for sure. And after that year, I went um, to the San Francisco Symphony. I was acting associate principal oboe there uh, for a short amount of time before I was, um, before I got the principal oboe job in the Seattle Symphony. Uh, and then Seattle, I was there for just under four seasons. Um, had a wonderful time there. Uh, great, great colleagues, had so many opportunities there, um, and just just had a wonderful, wonderful time. Great memories of being there. And then, um, as a circle of life, you know, I came back to the Met, and, uh, and I've been at the Met ever since. So this job is unique. Opera playing is really different from uh, symphonic playing, and... I would love to ask about um, your experiences playing opera and uh, how, I mean, are there different priorities in opera playing, different techniques in opera playing? How, how does it differ from symphonic playing and um, what do you enjoy about it? So playing in an opera orchestra is different 
than a symphonic orchestra in several ways. Of course, there are many similarities. They're, they're, mostly it's the same thing. You're still in an orchestra. You're still you're playing soloistically at times. You're playing accompanimentally at times. Um, you know, so all the basics of orchestral playing apply to opera. So, so in, the, in the grand scheme of things, it's actually very similar. But um, there are some differences. And there are sort of the obvious differences in that operas are much longer, for instance. It's a little bit more like running a marathon as opposed to a sprint. And that influences a bit um, your reads that, that you use, um, even your, your, your mental and physical stamina, um, these sorts of things, which I think are, are fairly obvious uh, about playing in the opera. Um, another factor, though, that I think playing in, in, in an opera orchestra develops in people is what I call radar. I sort of think you grow antenna when you're there because there's so many moving parts to what's going on. You have singers on stage who are various di distances from where you are in the pit. And when they are moving around on the stage, you know, the sound, of course, changes and the timing changes. So you have this, you just have so many moving parts and you are in this accompanimental role very often. So you need to be able to follow very, very closely and, and very quickly. So um, you start reading signs that, that in, instrumentalists or, or singers give you that they're about to do something. They're about to speed up. They're about to come off of a fermata and come down. You start hearing that a little more clearly when you have to line up with them all the time. So that, that flexibility um, and that radar is something that I think um, opera develops. Um, but probably the most important, or I would say the most significant thing that opera has, has taught me um, or has sort of influenced me in a way is the, it's this storytelling capability of music. And I think it's something that everybody thinks about in whether you're playing something that doesn't have a plot or doesn't have any words attached to it. Um, people are talking about telling a story all the time with their music. But in opera, when you hear stormy music in the orchestra, there's actually a storm going on on stage. And when you hear, uh, you know, the strings are going to tremolo and the oboe has some heart-wrenching solo, you know, somebody on stage has probably just lost the love of their life. And to have this so clearly illustrated, for me personally, it has sort of made it clear or more clear about the power of music to tell a story. And it made it more clear how composers use different tools in the music to show different emotions. And I think opera can be a, a, a sort of a, a gateway drug, shall we say, to people for um, sort of learning interpretation for these reasons that I just, um, just mentioned. 
So it's, it's, I think it's a special place that doesn't get a lot of attention in most schools and most younger um, musicians are, are more orchestrally geared or maybe solo geared, something like that. But it's hard to find exposure to opera. So it's something that, that I think gets lo- overlooked. And I do think there's a lot of value in it. Um, there's, there's another element in, in opera is that because it's of its length, um, you know, if you go to an hour, a, a three and a half hour long opera or sometimes five and a half hour long opera, depending on what you're playing or, or what you're going to, you get invested into the characters that are, that are there that are being portrayed in the story. And, you know, some composers like Wagner, you know, they even put, you know, these themes that are attached to characters or attached to the emotions that certain characters are feeling. And then Wagner will, you know, write these themes over and over when he wants the audience to recognize what is about to happen or what is happening. And you, you become so invested that there's just sort of an, an, another level of depth to the music that, that could, can be there when you just listen to simple, you know, just pure music without any, any vocal lines. But, but there is this, I think, an extra added layer of depth when, when you have characters and plot. Kind of along those lines, um, you just spoke about the ability for opera to allow uh, instrumentalists to tell a story melodically. And when we mm-hmm. told our listeners that we would be interviewing you, several wanted us to ask about your voice on the oboe and your tone. Um, so I wonder if you could talk to us about developing one's own unique voice and artistry as an individual. Yeah. I think that's a very important topic. I think it needs to be looked at from, from many different angles. And I think this is something that is a lifelong journey for all of us, which is part of what makes music so enjoyable for everybody. And I think everybody inherently knows that that's in music. Even, even the youngest musicians know they have a tremendous amount to learn and that this could go on for a lifetime. Um, which is really just one of the, the great joys about music. So, you know, I think when you're looking to develop your own unique voice or your, your own way um, to interpret, shall we say, we, we can sort of look at it through interpretation, for instance. When you're trying to figure out how to interpret a composer's intentions, um, I think the first thing one has to do is you have to gain sort of uh, um, intellectual uh, understanding of the music. And, and that's sort of through score study. This is something that I think, you know, is what music students learn in music theory, for instance. This is, um, you know, harmony, melody, rhythm, meter, the orchestration, the range, um, all of the indications that the composer gives us we, we have to study that and try to understand it so that we can piece together these clues to kind of know what the composer is going for. Um, so that, that first step, I, first of all, you have to study theory before you can really dig into that. But uh, that's important because that's the basis of why you're going to do what you're going to do. And you have to have some reasoning behind it. Otherwise it, 
I believe your music making won't be quite as compelling. And I don't think you will be as confident about your choices. If your choices are random, it doesn't, you don't believe in them and you have to believe in your choices. So, so you have to know the instructions, you have to piece together the instructions and you know, how those, when I say pieces of the puzzle work together, it's, you know, like how does harmony influence melody? You know, when the melody is going by, if there's a non-harmonic tone or if there's, um, you know, an appoggiatura or something like that, that obviously is a place that gets some kind of attention. So I think that that's the fundamental basis that everybody needs when they begin their sort of interpretive journey of, of any piece that they're doing. Another important step, I think, is learning the language of a particular composer, if it's possible. Some composers, you're, you know, if it's a new position, you might not have that many other pieces to compare to, depending on, you know, who the composer is. But for most composers, we have many pieces to listen to. And I think this can be tremendously helpful in just that you, you're not going to do something stylistically that's out of place. If you know what Mozart symphonies and chamber music and operas sound like when you go to play any particular passage from Mozart, you're probably going to play it within the style that fits for Mozart. So we, we have to, you know, listen to and go to tons of performances to start putting in the, you know, in our brain, the language of different composers. Another thing that I do after sort of those couple stages is I love to sit down at the piano, play the harmonies of any particular passage I'm working on and just sing the melody, sing the part that I'm trying to learn on the elbow. And I think this is something that anybody with almost no piano skills should be able to do. I'm not talking about complex harmonies and, and a lot of fingers. It can be three notes, block chords, very simple on the piano just so that you get away from the oboe and you start hearing the music the way you naturally hear it, mm -hmm. not the way your instrument hears it, not the way your instrument plays it. You know, the oboe has notes that, that stick out in certain ways. You know, the E is a very powerful note on the oboe. So does that mean that every phrase I'm going to play is going to have a loud E in it? Well, probably it shouldn't. And I'm sure this applies to every instrument. So I think it's really important to try to try to when you're thinking about how to play a piece of music, go at it away from your instrument first so that you can really feel how you naturally would, would sing it or naturally think about it. Um, I think you then have to determine the character or the mood or the emotion that's going on. And at this point, if you can try to personalize that and that you need some life experiences for to draw on. And it's something, you know, you can look, for example, you take something like, you know, Beethoven's third symphony, the Eroica, the funeral march, second movement is, you know, when he wrote it, I think he said this was, uh, many people know this is dedicated to Napoleon originally, who was in his mind, a very noble hero at the time. And um, didn't turn out to be that way later. But anyway, so that's what it was dedicated for, the death of this noble hero. Um, and you can play those solos as if it's dedicated to a noble hero, or maybe you can find something in your life that you've lost, some death of your own in a way that more vividly gets the emotion inside of you. 
that you can try to convey. And I think that's a way to make it a little more personal. Now, if for some reason you're still very young and maybe you don't have all the life experiences you need yet to draw on or uh, maybe something's not coming to you, I think at this point it's a great time to get into storytelling. And this is where you need creativity and imagination. And this is where you can, you can have multiple characters throughout a piece. They can be having all sorts of interactions. And you can really have fun with this. Um, I actually, I do this all the time when I'm playing concertos, there's kind of a funny one that I did and I changed the story actually at different times I play and I did a performance with Mozart concerto not too long ago. And, um, it's sort of a funny, embarrassing thing, but I'll, I'll mention it anyway, that I chose Winnie the Pooh as my, uh, my storyline for oh, the, the concerto. <laughs> so you, you know, you have Tigger. Who's bouncing around on his tail, <laughs> things like that. Um, you know, you have Kanga, you know, the mother of Rue, who has a motherly sort of uh, loving thing towards Rue. Or you have Rue, who's the innocent little, you know, thing. Anyway, and then you have Piglet, who is, is sort of, um, oh, I don't know, how is Piglet? Honest and sincere, and mm-hmm. Pooh is too, I guess. But anyway, any st- you can find stories everywhere. I mean, and you, if, if they mean something to you, you can put them into your music and they will mean something to your audience. Now, I think once you get those stories going and, and have these things you know, vividly portrayed in your mind, then it's time to go to the oboe or the bassoon or whatever instrument you're playing. And for this, it, now you have to figure out how like these certain emotions or how these certain characters, how can you actually bring that out? when how does that translate into playing your instrument so you know i could say great okay tigger what does it actually mean it probably means playing a very short staccato Mm -hmm. that's how that would translate now that's an example for that but maybe if i want something to sound innocent maybe that means playing with no vibrato maybe if i need something sound yearning I'm going to play my large intervals with a lot of portamento. Or if I need honesty to be shown, it would be like in the warmth of my sound. Um, So for this, you need the fundamentals on your instrument. You need command over the instrument and you need control over the instrument to be able to put those emotions, translate them into actual physical uh, terms on your instrument. So I think everyone, when they're, when they're looking at trying to interpret things, just realize that it's a, it's a long journey. I mean, if this sounds like it takes a long time, it took me a long time to describe it. It, it does take a long time, I think, and it should. And that's how you, I think that's how you get a very compelling um, interpretation. Now, you also mentioned just about, you know, sound on your instrument. And I think we're all a product of our environments, mostly our our environments and our backgrounds you know our backgrounds are our dna you know i i started in a boy choir and i'm also to this day listening to singers all the time i find a lot of inspiration uh listening to singers and there's no doubt that that's permeated into what i go for on the oboe as i mentioned even when i started the oboe all i was trying to do was continue singing in the same register that i was as a boy beforehand. So for me, that was sort of where I found uh, direction for my voice. But every orchestra I've played in, 
I've had to change my sound a little bit to be able to blend with the other players that were there or to be able to um, project in a certain way in that setting, in that um, acoustic. So I think everybody, everybody who has their sound or whatever, it's, it's a product of, of their, their, their DNA, their background and their environment. And so if you want to change your sound, you have to change all of those other elements and that's not an easy task, but that's, that's one of the only ways. So if you want to sound like something else, you need to get something else in your, because I believe our, our minds and our bodies are heat seeking missile devices. They, whatever you give them, whatever you listen to, whatever you concentrate on, that's what you're going to do. So, um, so I think it's very important what you focus on where where you put your attention whether it's the the different players you listen to the different artists you listen to or what you concentrate on when you're listening to them this is what shapes you into the the musician and the artist that you are i love that answer and you know i i'm going to have to change topics but i just wanted to express my appreciation for the straightforward way that you're talking about all this stuff because it you know, it's, it's a lot of work and it takes a long time. And, um, I appreciate the way that you're explaining it in such a down to earth methodical way. (laughs) It's really, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, it's great that it's a long journey. So that can be daunting. I think if you're 15 years old and listening to this, but it's actually a great thing that it's a long journey. So it'll, it'll take a long time, but that's going to make life interesting. So I think that's, that's a good thing. And the reason I, I, you know, I went on for a long time talking about that, but I find it's one of the things that's most difficult to teach or that isn't taught that much. You know, what I find is taught is, of course, scales, arpeggios, sometimes how to make a read, hopefully, things like that, which are a little easier to teach. And believe me, I think are absolutely critical. I mean, without that, you won't be able to do that step that I'm talking about, and that is applying the emotion, how how to get the emotion, how does that translate into your instrument? You need all those fundamentals, which is, for, for for most of our young listeners, that's you're going to spend a big chunk of your time focusing in on that. But I will say that I want to encourage while you're doing that, while you're learning your fundamentals, while you're practicing your scales, while you're organizing yourself with your reads, which you have to do, there's no getting around all of that. You have to exercise the creative muscle too. Mm-hmm. You can't let it go. It like any muscle that you don't use, it, 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 you know, disappears. You can maybe bring it back later, but it, it's something that has to be exercised. And this is, this is something I, um, I talk a lot about with my students. Um, it's sort of having a balance of, of, well, balance works in almost everything in life, but, you know, I think musicians, every instrumentalist, of course, has to be, whether they're a violinist or pianist, or whoever they're they have to be organized right you get your practice routine organized you methodically work through technical passages so that you can play them and then you have another side of your playing which is the performer it's the creative one the one that's looking for those emotional qualities 
for the spontaneity and live performance. And that's the zone, that's the mentality that I think is more helpful when you're actually performing. But you have to practice that. Now, I think oboists and bassoonists have the extra challenge of reed making. And because reed making, that's the, that exercises that side of your brain, which is the organizer, the diligent one, um, the, you know, to-do list one, the task maker, the, the um, you know, the busy person. That's making sure that you do all your stuff. And we, that's like a second job for us, as we all know. So it's, it's very easy to get doing that like crazy all the time. And I try to step back myself and I try to get my students to step back and exercise the creative, the creative part, just so that it's there when you need it. And you can also harness it when you're performing. Cause I think that's the better mentality to be in. We had a listener question about your read making process because mm-hmm. you have so many important performances so often. <laughs> um, <laughs> Philip asked about your read making process. What works for you to have enough good reads in the rotation that you're able to not just, you know, survive, but thrive? Yeah. Well, of course, I'm always looking for better and better uh, methods. Um, but what sort of works for me, first of all, is consistently working on reads. Um, I think the old saying of read a day keeps the psychiatrist away is a good one. <laughs> that really is a good one. It, um, it, that's how you keep perspective. And, and it's, you know, scraping your read is a technique like anything else. So you have to, you have to keep up on that. So, so I do try to get as much as I can some daily work uh, with reads, and um, and when I finish them daily, I'm trying to have like a, a rotation going or a, a not a, like the um, conveyor belt going, I should say, mm-hmm. where because I make my reads sort of in stages. So, um, you know, I might have that's sort of what I do on day one, and that is wrap the blank, and I do some initial scrapings clip it open and usually get a sound going and rough in the scrape. That's sort of a day one thing for me. And then I put it aside and I let it dry out. Um, and then the next day I come to it and I get it closer. I have a few um, just parameters that I want on that day to lengthwise. I try to get it, you know, uh, less than a millimeter away from like what I think my ideal length is. Um, I try to keep it, put things a little more in the ballpark basically on day two. I also like to play the read a little bit on day two I'll play some scales, some long tones, just, just kind of break it in. I find that that works a little bit better than trying to scrape it to break it in. Um, I think there's usually a little more wood left on the read that way. And that tends to last a little longer, which by the way, reads lasting a long time is something that coming to the opera world uh, was was a lesson that I had to learn there, and um, it's it's not easy for reads. But I think the biggest thing that helped me with that is finding really firm cane. Mm-hmm. I think soft cane can can sometimes you know you can get an okay sound on it, and you can you know maybe play something on it, but it's going to be short lived. And uh, certainly at the Metropolitan Opera, we have to play a lot. Not only are our services long, uh, so you have to be able to play through a long act or or whatever, but we just play a lot in general. So you do want your reads to last. 
so anyway, so that's day two. And then uh, usually on day three, I'm starting to finalize the read if I can. I'm getting the read to crow what it feels right to me. Try. I'm testing. I have a couple of objective tests. Make sure the response works. Make sure the pitch is stable. Um, and I'll I'll play a few some passages on it and stand away from my read desk and try to get very honest about the read and how is it. Um, and and sometimes it's ready to go at that point. Other times I need another day. Something maybe I didn't quite go as far as I needed to. But usually I make it in a few of these stages, and I just have a conveyor belt going so that every day I'm you know doing a, a finishing read or two, and I'm working on a day two or working on a day three, you know, read all all at the same time so that I'm sort of practicing all elements of read making every day if I can. And then if I know something really read draining is coming up, I I sort of ramp up my conveyor belt so that I'm just doing a little bit more than usual. Um, and, but the nice thing about having reads coming out on a somewhat of a daily basis or, or close to it is that, you know, the weather changes every day, of course. And so when you're finishing a read, you're finishing it to suit the weather conditions of where you are. And luckily that's slightly different every day. So these reads are all going to feel a little different, um, which I think is fine. And later on when I'm going to use them, maybe it's later that week, maybe it's the next week, whatever. Um, hopefully I'll, one of those reads will be a finished during the weather that is similar to the, you know, weather that's going on while I'm playing. So I'll soak up a couple of reads, you know, what I think might work for any given act that I'm playing and uh, try to make the best choice there. You are also a notable teacher who teaches at Juilliard, which is amazing. And you get a lot of really high quality students and, I would love to know what you look for in a student. What really gets you excited to teach an incoming class? Yeah. So the audition process for getting into schools is, is, a, is a tricky one. And I think on both ends, um, it's obviously very stressful for the students, but it's also stressful for the teachers because you're trying to gauge potential, which is a hard thing to gauge in a young student. Um, so, for for what I usually look for with students, number one is this love for music. I think that I have to somehow see that or hear that because I know without this enormous passion for music that they, they'll have trouble with all of the, the problems that come up in, in the past. So you, I look for that like crazy. Um, a certain amount of determination is something that I also um, look for. And a creative, artistic personality somewhere in there. And when people are young, some people haven't blossomed in that way yet. So I try to look under the skin for that. Some people, it's, it shines out very clearly when they're 18. It's no problem. But many people, it doesn't. And, and I think that's fine. But I look for little clues here and there, wherever I can find them, just to, to, to see that, that that's in there. Um, but... I look at every student as an individual and an individual um, journey that we're going to have together. And, uh, and it's a big responsibility as a teacher, of course, that they're putting all this trust in you. So um, anyway, the whole journey is something that I look, look forward to with the students. 
Can you tell us about a favorite memory of a past performance? Yeah, where do I start? Maybe with last night. <laughs> um, just because it's just on my mind. Um, last night we performed uh, Tchaikovsky's uh, Queen of Spades, beautiful opera. And um, we have uh, Soprano making her debut at the Met. Her name is uh, Lisa Davidson. And she's quite remarkable. Um, and I always get I'm inspired by singers in general, but especially some, someone new that I've never heard before. She just sounds glorious. She has this radiant voice that can project in the most unforceful way you could ever imagine. And there, there are many parts in opera, but there's one in Queen of Spades last night where she's singing and it, it, she sings this, this, this tune right before the oboe plays it. And and then I get to play it, and you know I'm I'm listening intently, of course, when she's singing that, just so that I can react to that or or somehow come anywhere near what she's doing in beauty, um, because it's it's really gorgeous. And anyway, I just I love these moments in opera. I just and luckily she's at the front of the stage, so I can sort of see her. So I actually I always turn up to the stage when I can and just watch them sing that or you know something similar to this and then i just i try my hardest to do anything like that on the elbow um and i it usually doesn't quite work i'd have to say i always feel like i'm i'm in 2d and they're in 3d or something but um but i but i love the inspiration i i just i love the way it feels that i know i'm about to play something that she's exactly singing and if I can just somehow translate what she's doing through me, through the hobo, um, that's, it keeps me going. I, I absolutely love that. And it happens, it happens often at the Met, luckily. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Oh, boy. Um, well, you've, first of all, you've got to love it. I mean, you've got to love it more than just about anything else you can think of because the path is not an easy one. So you need, you need the desire to keep going. Um, so you have to be, do some serious soul searching. That's number one to actually decide to make sure this is something you want to do. Um, and then what I would say is you need teachers and mentors. That's number one. Early on, you need to find the best teachers and the best mentors and, and people that can guide you so that you get good information, um, helpful information. Uh, and this, this is pretty much what I think is the most key element for, for young people. You have to work like a dog, of course. You have so much to learn. But guidance, you have to find the right guidance. And it's not always that easy to find everywhere, um, depending on, on where you're, you're coming from. So you have to seek it out and um, get involved. If you're involved in ensembles, in, uh, you know, like I was in choirs, I was in youth orchestras, things like that, I think that's great because you meet like-minded people and they give you recommendations for programs and teachers and things that can be valuable to you. So get involved, find good guidance, and figure out if you really, really love it. That is really excellent advice. 
Nathan, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you. We really appreciate you spending an hour with us on Double Read Dish. Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. So we hope you loved, loved, loved that interview with Nathan Hughes. Um, We've got some exciting things coming up in the very near future. So we would really love it if you subscribe to all of our social media, subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform so that you can be the first to know um, when this exciting news is released. Just a little teaser. Please tune in. You can find us on uh, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Stitcher. <laughs> Spotify. Uh, I said that one. Oh, that's it. I think. And you can always find us on our social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We love hearing from you. Uh, our email is doubleredish at gmail dot com. Jackie, which guest do we have coming next on the podcast? Oh, just a, a someone you may have heard of. You may uh, have heard of. Hmm. Yeah, she's she's done okay for herself. She's all right. Sophie Durbo is our next. <laughs> we are pumped. Side note: super glad she got married, so I do not have to try to pronounce her previous last name, which would have not gone well. <laughs> I believe in you. It would have been fine. <laughs> Delete. Time to end this nerd parade. Go make reads.